calling all lovers of mystery and fans of a good story. If you haven't already heard me talk about June's journey, you're in for a treat. It's time to don your detective hat in this free hidden object mobile game that delves into the captivating journey of June Parker, a self-proclaimed detective on a quest to unravel the mystery surrounding her sister's untimely death. In June's journey, you get to play as June, deciphering clues and unveiling secret plots within thousands of beautifully illustrated scenes. And did I mention it's set in the glitzy 1920s? New chapters are added weekly, so you will never run out of new thrills to uncover, and you can also personalize and decorate your very own Orchid Island where the story takes place. How sharp are your detective skills? Find out when you download June's Journey on your Android or iOS device, or play online via Facebook games. Your detective journey awaits. Hey there, it's Rachel Ballinger, and I am thrilled to invite you to Rachel Uncensored, my podcast where I get real with my friends and celebrity guests, where we talk about all sorts of topics. From personal stories to hot button issues, we cover it all. New episodes drop every Wednesday, so make sure you tune in on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Trust me, you won't want to miss out on the fun and candid conversations we have here on Rachel Uncensored. Hi, I'm Keegan. And I'm Madigan. And you're listening to Your Angry Angry Neighborhood Feminist. Feminist. This is a podcast where we explore the world through our own personal feminist perspectives. Hello, darling. Hello. How are you doing this morning? Well, I've already checked in with you, Keegan, because I woke up at about 4 a.m. with massive cramps and suffered for a good half an hour, like waiting for the Tylenol to kick in when my dumbass sleepy head finally remembered that the cure to my cramps is just smoking a bowl. So of course, once I smoked a bowl, I was off to bed and fine. But it took me like an hour and a half to do it. I don't know what it is. It's like weed does help with period cramps. Mm -hmm. It helps a lot. Um, In fact, I had a friend who had, I have a friend who has a friend who made, um, bath fizzies that have CBD in them and that helps me a lot but something about being on my period it it ups my anxiety so much that then when I smoke weed on top of it it helps the cramps but it makes me super fucking anxious see so weed weed for me does the opposite and maybe it's just the type that I do when I'm anxious and if I just smoke a little bit sorry you guys for this whole intro but if I just smoke a little bit it lowers my anxiety a little bit it makes my pain go away a little bit and I don't feel too high but in the middle of the night if I haven't smoked in a while and I smoke a bowl I get a little bit more high but that knocks me the fuck out then I fall asleep yeah, I mean, that's nice, at least. Although I did, sleeping. I did have a nightmare, though, that I was at work after I did this and I fell back to sleep. I had a nightmare that I was at work and they're doing a bunch of remodels at the house right now. So they have people there, but they're kind of like blocked off. But next week, there are going to be some people in the house. So I had a nightmare that they were all walking around without masks, coughing on things, touching things, coming close to me. And I woke up and I was like, that was the like most... 2020 nightmare I could have yeah, ever it's had. Yeah, a COVID anxiety dream for it sure. Was, it Stress was. dream. It was. Well, I mean, that's our reality. I know this is not what this episode is about, but <laughs> we've been having so many conversations about how I'm pretty sure we're going to end up back in lockdown. Uh, so that's yeah, something to look forward to. I know. I was kind of hoping that on my birthday, I was going to do just like a slumber party with my best friends just for like the night before my birthday or whatever. And we've all kind of mostly been quarantining like without seeing many people social distancing even. But now I'm like, no, I'm not risking it, especially after I had that like scare. 
I'm not risking it now. So I'm like, I'll just have my birthday inside. It's all. I don't think you've told the listeners about your scare. So they might be like, what is that? Oh, my God. I'm sorry. Okay. Well, I want to get into the episode. So I'll mention it really quick. But I my dear friend, Lauren, who God bless her, has just gone through it this year with her health. Love her to death. Huge listener. We adore her. Um, She got COVID, but didn't have any symptoms. And so she, we had social distance hung out, however you want to hanged out, whatever, a couple of days before. So I was like, fuck. And so I went and I contacted Keegan and Anthony to be like, hey, where'd you get tested? Because everywhere I was going in the Valley, it was like such a long wait. And I went to this place um, kind of near Thousand Oaks and it was so easy. So now I'm telling everybody and their mother to go get tested because like it took me, 20 minutes total once I was there to go through yeah, the process. Yeah, I don't know where you live, listener, but here in Los Angeles, you can get tested as many times as you want for free. Yeah. So, that's the other- you know, Anthony's basically been going every two weeks just yeah. to re-up and see how we're doing, you know? Well, especially if there are times that you think maybe you've gotten close to somebody or anything, and if you have a lunch hour and you're in that area, or if you, like, look online and find a place in your area, it's so freaking easy. And, like, at this place, too, like, I thought they were going to do the Q-tip up the nose thing. But it was the uh, you just kind of swab the inside of your mouth and you do the whole thing yourself. And I just threw it in this like kind of library book return looking thing. And I got my results in a day. It was supposed to be so three to five I. days. I yeah. got it in one day and it said I was negative and it was great. So that's the story of my COVID scare. I'm good. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, it's definitely something that I'm very aware of the fact that we could be going back into lockdown. But I'm OK with it, honestly. Like I've I'm so used to this and I've kind of created my own uh, routines of things that I like to do now that I live this life so I'm kind of like you know if I have to go back to being a little bit more introverted again I know now that I can survive it I'll be okay I can survive it but I am not looking forward to it let but me at least tell it's, you it's summer and like I have this great dog pool now that I'm going to use myself and hopefully eventually lure Penny into it uh, that I can sit in and like get some sun. I got a little bit too much sun again yesterday. Uh, but just being outside in the summer and even like having friends over and spreading out through the yard is just like, that's enough for me. You know, I love that. It's great. So, all right. Should we get into what we're actually talking about this episode? Yes. So this was something that we had decided to talk about uh, at the beginning of the month when we had originally planned out our Pride Month episodes. Uh, It was the one we were supposed to do first. And then we kind of like recalibrated um, and wanted to refocus on Black Lives Matter uh, and issues pertaining to that. And so this got kind of put on the back burner. But I know that we had both done a considerable amount of research for this already. So when we were trying to decide what to do this week, it's the final week of Pride Month. uh, I was like, let's just go back and do the Kinsey scale, because I do think it's something that a lot of people misunderstand. Um, And also, the history of it is really fascinating in the way that it ties in with uh, the LGBTQ community. So I kind of wanted to 
start off by just saying what the Kinsey scale is, because I think a lot of people may not be aware of it. So the Kinsey scale, it's also known as the heterosexual homosexual rating scale. And it's one of the oldest and most widely used scales to describe sexual orientation. And we will talk about the ways in which it is outdated. But at the time, this scale was groundbreaking because it was one of the first models to suggest that sexuality is not binary and that people can be not only heterosexual or homosexual, but fall somewhere within a range. Exactly. So the Kinsey scale is named after its originator, Alfred C. Kinsey. He was a biology professor who worked at Indiana University. In 1938, he was asked to teach a course on marriage. So when he was preparing for this course, he figured that he should incorporate information pertaining to the subject of sex. And he realized that there was really no information out there available for him, any data out there that he could give his students. So then he started talking to his adult students about their own sexual experiences. And then he started, you know, kind of reaching out to, you know, other students, then faculty members, then people in the community and friends of his and just kind of began inquiring about people's sex lives. And this was obviously unheard of at the time this is 1938 you know his his history is actually kind of fascinating so he was born in 1894 in Hoboken New Jersey and his parents were poor and they were devout Methodists so he had a very strict kind of like Methodist upbringing and he'd always wanted to study science but his father disagreed with that because it went against the tenets of their very strict Christian faith. Of course. But he decided to study science anyway. He attended uh, Bowdoin College in Maine and graduated in 1916 with degrees in biology and psychology. And then he went to Harvard and he continued to study biology, but he was specifically studying entomology. So he was studying insects. Uh, But he met a woman named Clara McMillan while he was there. And the two had a very interesting relationship. So while they were both virgins, whenever they got married, they had an interest in sex right away and had an open marriage so that they could both explore their sexualities. And it's unclear as to what Alfred's sexual orientation actually was, but he did say later in life that he struggled with his sexuality and his wife, you know, made mentions that she believed that he was bisexual somewhere on that scale. So the couple began privately counseling their students and like young married couples because they knew how much they had struggled with sex and understanding sex. And especially since he's a biologist, it was kind of one of those things where it was like, um, this is something that we should have a better understanding of as adult people who are engaging in sexual activities. Exactly. He thought of it from a very, you know, logical standpoint. And he was, you know, all of the people who have worked at the Kinsey Institute, especially when they worked with him when he was alive, they always, you know, describe him as like constantly experimenting. Like he just very much had the mind of a scientist. Yeah, totally. And by 1933, he had devised a scale kind of on his own through his own like kind of scientific method of keeping notes and things like that. And it was a scale zero through six that measured a person's sexuality. So that's kind of like the beginning of his idea of like developing this this Kinsey scale. And he took that idea and he 
kind of applied it to his study of gall wasps, which was what he was most famous for at that time, which is kind of strange given what he's famous for now. Of course. But he wanted to study the mating rituals of gall wasps. And then eventually he started to talk about human sexuality. And he became very outspoken. Like in 1935, he addressed the faculty uh, where he was working about the widespread ignorance around sexual matters because a lot of these students at university, they were 17 or older and they were married because people got married very young um, and yet they did not understand basic anatomy and sexual needs. And that's kind of when, like you were saying, Madigan, um, he was offered to teach that kind of marriage course. Right. And then so he started asking these questions and based off of just kind of his original scale, he started uh, assembling a list of questions and a pattern for questioning and a method of recording uh, the data, especially using code. You know, they say that he was very big and making sure that everything was very confidential. Uh, each interview was coded and the key to that code has been locked away and is permanently secure from access by unauthorized individuals to this day. So everything is locked away in a vault, including Kinsey's own interview. So a lot of people question, you know, Kinsey's sexuality and Kinsey's behaviors and what Kinsey did during these interviews and how he would respond. Well, nobody's ever going to know because they're all confidential and they're locked away. Right. Basically, all we have as far as like understanding what Kinsey's own sexuality was is the word of people who were around at the time. And we do know that he had an open relationship with his wife, um, that he had a sexual relationship with his wife. And we also know that he did have a sexual relationship with a man who um, worked with him on these studies. Right. So we know that he's had sexual relationships with both. But we can't uh, label him, obviously. We Yeah, we yeah. don't know where he and falls I, on that spectrum. And I also appreciate that his close friends, colleagues, and future members of the Institute also are very respectful of that. It seem, And that's the thing that I do want to point out. While this is very outdated, especially what we're going to talk about, they've done a lot of work to try to at least like acknowledge the flaws in what they've done and there have we're going to talk about a few other tests and grids and things like that that have come out of the Kinsey scale Uh, they at least acknowledge at this time that you know this is an outdated system but why it was so important at the time and they still respect the uh the confidentiality of all of the participants no matter how long it's been and I really appreciate that right and and that's really important because to set the scene a little bit um you know before we get into talking about the results of the study and all of those things but to set the scene a little bit in January of 1948 which is when his book came out the world was trying to recover from World War II that war had ended just two and a half years earlier and everyone was struggling to rebuild. And in America, we were in the middle or in the beginning stages of the war against communism. And very often the war against communism here at home was directly tied in the war against homosexuality. Like a lot of times people considered people who were quote unquote sexual deviants, which is what they called homosexuals at the time, uh, to be communists. And so that's kind of also where the phrase the lavender scare comes from, which we've talked about before on this show. Employees would lose their jobs due to accusations of communism that can be traced directly back to their sexual preference. Um, And so 
many, many people were forced to endure public federal hearings in which all of their sexual exploits were laid bare for the public. And so it was very important uh, that they keep all of this information as confidential as possible. And it's actually kind of amazing that he was able to get people to be as honest uh, as they were in these studies. Well, right. He really honed in on this interview method. And I actually found the entire booklet online. I download the downloaded the PDF and it was like 140 pages, but a lot of it was uh, like graphs and stuff. So I really didn't read 140 pages. I read more like 70 pages yesterday. Um, but I kind of wrote some notes about his interviewing method. And he has three basic phases in his interview. And the first stage is a prologue. And this is where they express their clear appreciation of the willingness to participate with the person who is taking the survey. Uh, They kind of observe the person who is taking the survey, you know, kind of how they behave, if they shake hands, take a chair, things like that. And this whole phase is just kind of about greeting, making people feel comfortable, letting them ask questions about, you know, what's going on, about confidentiality, anything like that. And they really talk about the importance of empathy with the people that work at the Kinsey Institute and making sure that you're feeding off of, um, I keep wanting to say patient, but they're not a patient, the respondent's energy and making sure that they feel as comfortable as possible. And they also talk about starting with, you know, easy questions, you know, least sensitive topics and work your way into more sensitive subjects. You know, you start with name, age, where you're from, upbringing, parental history, things like that. And then it kind of starts moving on to you know, your relationships with your parents, your relationships with your friends, uh, who you're attracted to, then it starts getting into a bit more of the uh, more uh, sensitive questions, as you will. And they strongly caution against the use of euphemisms, which I think is really important because that helps then the respondent uh, respond to the question as clearly as the interviewer is asking it. They don't feel uncomfortable having to use euphemisms to answer, you know? Again, that's, it's, for the time, nobody talked about sex in plain terms, right? And so it was very interesting and also necessary for a scientific study to talk about sex in a very scientific, biological way, um, not using euphemisms, not using innuendo, just ask the questions uh, and get the honest answers. So in 1941, he had formally launched his research into the study of sex, and he secured uh, a $1,600 grant from the National Research Council's Committee for Research on the Problems of Sex. Very long title. Um, And over the years, that amount would increase to $40,000, which is the equivalent of $400,000 today. Wow. That's how seriously people were taking this study. And it's, again, very progressive for the early 1940s that he was able to secure that kind of funding. It is. And I wonder, I wonder if there was interest on both sides as you're talking about, you know, the communist, uh, the communist scare in the air in America at the time. I wonder if there was an interest also for some people in wanting to know more because maybe having more information could then lead right, they to could possibly weaponize that information right i didn't yeah, or, or i didn't read that would, anywhere but 
or no, me neither. But I mean, it, it's valid that it's possible that they were like, okay, let's let him study this, and maybe his findings will validate what we think already, right? Which exactly. is that sexual deviancy is tied directly to communism or what have you, exactly. So. And you will, we will talk about, or I, I, at least I will talk about this woman, I think it's Judy or Julie Reisman, I don't care her name for her name enough to even say it, but she is very much against Kinsey, and uh, she's very far right, and she's been kind of the one that spearheaded this campaign against him and what he stands for. So we'll get into more of that later. <laughs> But between 1939 and 1947, Kinsey and his team claimed that they managed to secure sex histories from 12,000 individuals all across the U.S. Now, there is some speculation as to whether or not that number is accurate, because it did appear that as though Kinsey fudged some of the numbers or some of the information wasn't purely accurate. Like it came out later that some people who he had um, written down as being part of a married couple were actually single. Um, so, and, and like he had said that he had interviewed a number of pedophiles and it came out that it was actually just one. Uh, so those numbers are slightly in question. And also another flaw in his data is that he only published accounts from white people. He claimed that there wasn't enough test samples from black histories to be used in the initial publication. Uh, but I call bullshit. It seems like he just didn't try hard enough. Nah, I call bullshit. If so, you went across America to get your samples, I just said that really weird. Samples? Um, there, you're going to run into black communities everywhere will you where you will have your fair share of different types of people like I, that right to me, i mean that's maybe, a lame excuse but maybe it was a good enough excuse in 1938 i don't know yeah I'm, I'm, and maybe it was a thing where it was like um hard to get those communities to open up to him maybe they didn't trust him they didn't trust science uh black communities had a good reason not to trust right uh, people well i wish that he would have at least then added that to his Data like that's the thing about science is that if you're going to give us data, but you don't have a large enough sample size, instead of lying and saying that you do, you know, talk about the reasons maybe that you don't like I was unable to get a sample of, you know, different minority groups because of X, Y, Z, you know, right. I and mean, that's and, another and thing to look into. He doesn't even address other minority groups like, you know, it's a very black and white, quite literally issue. And he doesn't even address that. What about Latinx populations? What about Asian populations? Um, he doesn't address any of that. So when we're talking about the results of this study, it is talking about a completely white base. Exactly. Yeah, the numbers, especially the statistics and the percentages of people that they say are homosexual in the country just doesn't really seem accurate to me well I mean and no matter how comfortable you make people I still believe that you are going to have people fighting against their own urge to protect themselves right. during this time and so they may not have been a hundred percent honest I right. mean that's what happens when you're dealing with human beings and you're relying on them to be honest in order to uh, extract data 
The first volume of the Kinsey Report, which was Sexual Behavior in the Human Male, was published in 1948, and it cataloged 5,300 male subjects and cataloged everything from masturbation and fantasy to premarital sex. Uh, And I know that you would like to reveal some of these questions because some of the questions on these uh, within these interviews are curious. Oh, they're so good. They're so good. So in this uh, pamphlet or booklet, whatever that I downloaded, they break it down into the different uh, topics of questions that they ask. So, you know, they go into marriage history and they ask you to rate your uh, marital adjustment rating. How have you been adjusting to marriage one through four? You know, very happy to unhappy. Uh, then it's like, you know, kids and their ages, they give them a physical. And then they start asking questions about sexual arousal, sex education. And there was one that I really, really liked that during the physical, the questions and the things. OK, this is really invasive. This is a quote from the booklet. It says subjects actual measurement of the length of his penis flaccid. Then again, when it's erect, then the circumference when flaccid, then the circumference when erect, then they ask the side of his trousers on which subject wears his penis, which, by the way, that question is not asked anymore since I think 1980 something. They cut that one out. I wonder (laughs) what the purpose was of asking that question like I don't I want to know what the answers are. I want to know what the responses and the answers are, because I can tell you right now if I were to go out and ask my boyfriend which side of his trousers he wears his penis. I don't think he could. I, I don't think he could give me an answer. I just there's I something about the, the answers to that where I'm just kind of like, do you always wear your penis on the same side? <laughs> there's like, something you know about what I mean? call, saying wearing a penis is really funny to me. <laughs> it's just I don't. I don't. I, I don't know. Maybe I'm wrong because I don't have a penis, but I feel like. Is it a conscious thing that you're choosing to put it on one side or the other? I mean, or is I guess it just like c- wherever you shove it? I mean, I guess you could. I feel like it would just be wherever it falls, right? But I guess that, like maybe some feel. people feel more comfortable with it being on a certain side rather that be like, okay, not a guy. But isn't it like the balls kind of end up being on like one side and the penis kind of ends up being almost like next to it? They're not like on top of each other anymore. They're kind of like. I don't know. I mean, I, that's what it looks like. So then would it be more comfortable for like the balls maybe sometimes to be on one side and the penis to be on the other? So some guys have like a depends. preference. Maybe it depends on which way your penis lays naturally. Oh, I, yeah. I feel like it probably does favor a certain one side. side or the other. Anyway, well, because they do. But no, but they do ask about like, you know, the curve of the penis, things like that. Like they they measure all of that kind of stuff, which is interesting because, you know, all of this is the reason that we have basic knowledge that, you know, everyone knows that all men masturbate. We all know, you know, there's so many like common things that we now know. Also, we know that like there are many different shapes, sizes and you know, everything's of penises, et cetera. You know, no two so penises are the same. No two penises. They're like fingerprints. Exactly. And then maybe later they would learn that no vaginas are the same. Not all girls have porn star <laughs> vaginas, but whatever, neither here nor there. Um, but yeah, but in, they go, like, oh no, I was going to say they, they start going into some things, you know, most of this is very behavioral. That's the big thing that I want to point out because I should have made this whole thing at the, at the top of this episode. None of these scales 
are an accurate way to label yourself. None of them are. Like this is, I took all of, I did all the scales, I took all the tests and I will share my results. None of them are true to how I would describe myself personally and my sexuality. You know what I mean? Right, yeah, right. So, okay, so, and we're gonna talk about the scale. Alfred had laid out a seven point scale that measured a person's heterosexuality or lack thereof Zero was the fully heterosexual. One was heterosexual, but incidentally homosexual, meaning the participant had at least one homosexual experience. Uh, This could be any, this is why it's not accurate, because when they say that, this could be anything from a wet dream about another man to a hand job in middle school. (laughs) You know, it could mean anything. And all of those things kind of fell into having a homosexual experience. Um, Two was heterosexual, but more than incidentally homosexual. And that means, you know, maybe you had four hand jobs. Um, Three was equally heterosexual and homosexual, which is what they considered at the time to be bisexuality, which is flawed for reasons we will discuss. Yes. Um, Four was predominantly homosexual, but with more than incidental incidentally heterosexual five was predominantly homosexual and only incidentally heterosexual and six was all out homosexual there was also x which was for individual an individual who had never had a sexual experience and i see a lot of people refer to x as being asexual right but I've done some reading and also I listened to a Stuff You Should Know episode about asexuality. A lot of people in the asexual community do not believe that X represents them because a lot of people who are asexual, consider themselves to be asexual, have had sexual experiences. It's not as though they have had no sexual experiences at all, that they're all virgins. It's that they, maybe they have had some sexual experiences and they still consider themselves to be asexual, meaning that they don't, right. They don't have a desire for sexual, a sexual preference. Yes. It does seem that people, other scientists especially have kind of put the label of asexuality into this other variable that is X that is listed in the scale. But to me, this seems like if I were to have been interviewed at age, you know, 17, where maybe I've had some sexual, you know, not really, se- well, maybe not that, it, not, not that old, but maybe at a time where you've had some sexual experiences or kissing and things like that, but not, but you haven't had intercourse things like that i'm sure there was a right. vast you know different types of people that have experienced different levels of intimacy in their physical right. relationships mean, and, and they're considering x to be somebody who has not had any sexual experiences right. which means like no hand jobs no over the clothes stuff like nothing but i also believe that it, it's possible that that was far more likely for people in their upper teens who weren't married because anything that was outside of sexual relations with a married within a married heterosexual relationship was considered to be sexual deviancy. So I think a lot of people were virgins at the time that they got married. So uh, there was probably a good number of people who fell into that X category. And that doesn't mean they're asexual. It just means that they have yet to have any. They might be asexual, but they might not be. Exactly. You know, we don't know. Um, So the scale does not it's 
not a flawless metric, okay? It's not a flawless <laughs> metric, and it's also not a test. That's the thing that I think a lot of people misunderstand, especially because there have been so many websites out there that have created tests. I took a test uh, weeks ago when we had first talked about doing this episode. I was with my girlfriends, and we decided to take all of us take the test, and... Um, it's not legitimate. It's not. It wasn't meant to be a test. It was meant to be a scale through a series of interview questions and analysis. So if you are seeing tests online for you to find where you fall on the Kinsey scale, you know, if that helps you, if that's something that is a helpful tool for you to help define yourself, there is no actual test along with the Kinsey scale that is legitimate just so you know. Right, yeah. But at the time, even though this was an incredibly flawed metric, it was groundbreaking and important because not only did it convey that sexuality was not binary, but it did so in a way that was without judgment. Because while these books were bestsellers, they were on the New York Times bestseller list, Uh, they were still basically scientific journals. So they're very dry to read, actually. They're not like super exciting reads, but that's kind of part of what made it so interesting for people because there was no judgment. It wasn't coming from a place where the author was putting their own emphasis on the results of this study. They were just like, these are the results. And it was, it kind of split the nation in half because a lot of people found it very unnerving. We were in a state, I mean, we still are, um, but especially back then, we just come out of two world wars. Uh, A lot of our young men had been fighting in wars. And as we know, that environment is hyper hyper masculine and so heteronormalcy was at an all-time high after the war and these results were saying that 37 percent of adult men had engaged in some kind of homosexual activity with that number rising significantly for men who were older and still single it said that doctors also wrote that teenage boys were 55 percent more likely to explore sexual activity with another boy. 10% of all men had been exclusively homosexual for at least three years of their life. Um, so these these results were very it was, shocking. It was very damning to the machismo of the United States. You know what I mean? Like we were the this powerful force in these two world wars and we very much had this clear-cut idea of what the American family should be. You know, we've been, Max and I have been rewatching right. a lot of old cartoons, especially from like the 50s and so on, like the Flintstones and I don't know what year the Jetsons came out, but you know, they very much perpetuate this idea of what the American family should be and I think that a lot of that was in response to a lot of the things that we've discussed on this show, obviously, that have happened during that era, but this definitely I feel added another element of fear of losing what is conventional. And we still see this to this day. They don't want this information to be out because this is the thing. This was the first time that people had access to something where even though it was so dry, it wasn't a good read. People who had questions about themselves, who maybe misunderstood why they had attractions for somebody who was, you know, of the same sex as them. They were able to read this book or able to, you know, read the scientific study and learn more about themselves and come to terms with themselves in, like Keegan was saying, a very non judgmental and welcoming, peaceful manner. 
And that was the first yeah. time they were ever exposed to this. And ever since then, there has been a scare of information. And then through information that comes acceptance of people who are not completely heterosexual. Right. I mean, and not only in in the sense of like sexuality, um, you know, being heterosexual, homosexual, bisexual, pansexual, whatever, but also this study revealed a lot of other things that I think Americans were not necessarily ready to digest at the time. For instance, it revealed the fact that 50% of white men who engaged in this study had indulged in extramarital affairs. And between the infidelity and homosexual claims, Life magazine said, new worlds of suspicion were open to doubting wives by Kinsey's revelations on men. (laughs) So it was kind of like, we had this idea of the nuclear family, monogamous, heterosexual, leave it to beaver kind of, family and then this study comes out and it's like oh no no your men are cheating your men have had (laughs) relationships with other men you know yes and it just opened our eyes in a way that like like sexuality is complicated we could never go back so in 1972 uh they moved the institute head over to someone with the last name Gebhardt. I think I write their first name somewhere. I'll see it later. Uh, But they were the new head of the institute, and they decided to reanalyze Kinsey's data to eliminate some more sample bias. So they did do the test again. This was still in 1972, so I'm sure the samples... Did you see anything about the samples um, for the next time that they did any testing? I'm sure it still wasn't great. What I had seen was, so after the sexual behavior in the human male came out in 1953, so a few years later, he released a second volume called The Sexual Behavior in the Human Female, which didn't do as well, but it still landed on the bestsellers list, and it it kind of like delved into female sexuality and things like that, but then... Uh, After Eisenhower was elected to office in 1952, the Lavender Scare scare and America's homophobia hit an all-time high in 1953 uh, because we had an election of a conservative president, a lot of far-right officials, and so Kinsey's funding was pulled at that point. So I don't really know what happened because his research on sex had been essentially shut down right. well, after was, that. And then he passed away in 1956. Right. So. Yeah. This was 1972. So I didn't do a whole lot of research into how they, you know, reopened and everything like that. But I knew, I know that the next person in line, sorry, was able to kind of see some of the issues in uh, the original samples. So with this study, it shows that between one fourth or one third of adult white males with college education had a quote, overt homosexual experience since puberty. He estimated that 4% of white college educated males and between one to 2% of white females were predominantly or exclusively homosexual. So I was talking to Keegan, I can't remember if we were recording when I was saying this or this was before we were recording, but it feels to me that some of these, no, this was a recording because these numbers seem very low to me still with the percentages of people who identify as being gay, lesbian, bisexual, pansexual, and so on. Um, So it seems that they were still maybe asking very specific questions because the whole point of this this test is to see that it's a very, it's a large scale. You don't necessarily fall on one side or the other. Right. I mean, I agree completely, but I, I do think that 
even in the 70s, when we think of the 70s as being a very sexually liberated time, key parties like group sex, like things like that were happening in the 70s. Um, it's still important to note that while Kinsey and his study initially helped rip some of the stigma away from homosexuality, it would still be another decade after his study that laws against homosexuality would be repealed. It was another 20 years before the American Psychiatric Association would remove homosexuality from its list of diseases. So I think that those numbers can seem low because I still wonder if the stigma kept people from being 100% honest. Of course. And it does, all of those results that I just said did say white male, white female. So it does sound like they were still uh, very closed minded in their sample sizes when it came to minority groups. Uh, but the most recent study was held in 2011, and there were four people who worked on it. It was Chandra, Mosher, Copen, and CEO. Sionian? I don't know. But they had a sample of 13,495 men and women between 2006 and 2008. And the study attempted to differentiate between sexual attraction, sexual behavior, and sexual identity. So, Which I think is a really important distinction to make. It is. Because it, it, and I know that that was one of the limitations that gets talked about a lot with the original Kinsey scale is that it doesn't account for differences between romantic and sexual orientation. Exactly. You know, because you can be, it, it's not always the same. It's possible to be sexually attracted to people of one gender and romantically attracted to people of another gender. Well, and that's the thing. As the, and, it, and this is still a very binary way of looking at things. They're looking at it in a way of, are you attracted to male or are you attracted to female? We're now, you know, even since 2011, I feel like we're growing more and more of an understanding that gender is non-binary as well. So when you're looking right. at sexuality, that ties into another whole thing. So hopefully that is clear that we understand that there are more than just the two genders, but all of these studies focus on, yes. Yeah, the scale did not account for gender fluidity in any way. Yes, it was very, very binary as far as gender was concerned. Well, all of it's very, I mean, you're either gay, bi, or straight, and then you're either male or female. You know what I mean? So all of these uh, answers, I think, also are affected by how a person identifies themselves rather than how a test is identifying them. So um, two to four percent of males and one to two percent of females identify themselves as homosexuals in this 2011 study, which, by the way, I'm sorry if I keep using the word homosexuals and it's only because they're using it in this. I know we've gotten messages about that in the past. Right. Yeah. We're using the language that is used in these studies. Yes. Okay. I'm sorry. Just, just to keep it clear. Yes. Yeah. I just said it a lot and I was like, oh shit, I don't think I said anything. Okay. So one to 3% of males and two to 5% of females identified as bisexual, which that to me makes a little bit more sense that more females at this time are admitting that maybe they have feelings for uh, and attractions toward other women more than men will. I feel like that's very much a societal thing as well. Four to six percent of men had had same-sex contact. And then the percentages for females are weird because it's either four, 11, or 12 percent of females have had <laughs> same-sex contact in some way. And again, I feel like when you're talking about same-sex contact, t- 
contact, that can mean a lot of different things because I feel like women are much more affectionate physically, whether that be holding hands. Mm -hmm. Women kiss each other on the mouths sometimes even. You know, there are ways. I feel like women are more tactile with each other just in general. Right. Yeah. So while they may not identify themselves as being a lesbian, women will probably have reported having more intimate and uh, physical contact with the same gender as men would. Again, these questions that they're asking, they leave a lot of room for error because if Mm -hmm. you're not taking into account the societal differences between what we deem to be acceptable within friendships for men and women, there are a lot of differences there. So if you're asking the same question of men and women and you're saying, have you held hands with someone of the same sex? It's going to be far more likely that just because of societal norms that women are going to say, yes to that question yeah exactly and then you know I just think of the conversations that I've had with my my male friends and my female friends when we're all together regarding like you know what physical intimacy looks like when you're with the same when you're with your same gender or whatever like when I would hang out with my girlfriends like I taught my three best girlfriends how to kiss Like, I've made out with them. It wasn't sexually charged. I wasn't attracted to them. I've kissed many of my friends because there was something, you know, to me that it was dangerous and it was interesting. So for me, that is something that's part of my, I guess, I don't know, quote unquote, sexual past. But I don't consider, but you know, but it doesn't necessarily mean that we label ourselves within that way. And men don't have those same experiences in which they question themselves in the same way either. Yeah, and I, I don't, I don't even think it necessarily needs to be that like explicit, which I mean, I, th- I know a lot of women who I've I've made out with girlfriends like I, I think that that is fairly common. But even beyond that, it's like just the way that women interact with each other or a lot of female friendships are set up like we would lay on each other's laps, sit on each other's laps, put my head on my friend's stomach when we're, you know, hanging out like things like that are far more socially accepted yeah, I mean, among being, female friend groups. And being nude in front of each other. I mean, Keegan and I, we went to her best friend Amy's bachelorette party together where we went to a Korean spa mm-hmm. and we were just naked together yep. all day. Like, And, you know, there are locker rooms for guys, but I think it's different than, like, you know, actually really spending time with someone when right. they're naked. because there's you know? this hyper-masculinity, right? And it's this toxic masculinity, heteronormalcy that exists within our culture that, I mean, there's that hashtag no homo, you know what I mean? Exactly. Like, love you, bro, but, like, no, I'm not gay. I want to make it explicitly clear that I'm not gay. Exactly. You know, that, that stuff and that same culture Culture doesn't exist really with female friendships, not in the same way. Yeah, exactly. So I want to start talking a bit about where this scale really lets down the bisexual community, because this is kind of where the beginnings of misunderstandings for uh, what it means to be bisexual, I feel, really begins. Because if you were get a level or if you are on the three in the Kinsey scale, that means that you are bisexual, which means that your attraction is split exactly 50-50, which then in the minds of people who identify as being bisexual, I was reading this, that it can mean that they feel that they're, they're at competition with their identity to make sure that they're evening their numbers out. You know, I need to make sure that I'm dating the same amount of both gender and attracted because they have to prove that they are at that three 
stage. Well, because quite literally, that scale, what they're saying is the, the reason you're put there on that scale is because you have had the same number of sexual interactions with men and women. And so, yeah, it, it does make you think like, okay, well, if I have one more sexual interaction with somebody of the same sex uh, than I do of somebody of the opposite sex, then that must mean that I'm gay now. Yes, you know, exactly. Instead of well, just that's being the like, thing is that this scale is more like a seesaw. You know, the more pebbles you yeah. put on one side with gender, yes. the more you put, you know what I mean? So it almost created this thing where uh, people who identified as bisexual felt this need to uh, to prove to themselves and to others that they could kind of keep that seesaw even, that they were truly who they were. And I feel that, you know, that is why we have a lot of bisexual erasure uh, in the LGBTQ plus community and just in the co- in this country, in the world in general, because there's such a lack of understanding of having attraction to both and what that means, you know? Uh, so yes. since the Kinsey scale has come out, there has been a few other uh, scales and grids, the two most notable being the Klein scale and the Storms grid. So the Klein scale measures both behavior and attraction, which is a step up from the Kinsey scale because Kinsey didn't really put into play attraction. Uh, But obviously, it still had problems. Um, The Klein scale actually did originally want to focus mostly on bisexuality. Uh, The guy, Mr. Klein here, what's your first name? Fritz, Fritz Klein. He wanted to focus on bisexuality, and his goal was to help develop a positive attitude around bisexuality. So he did accomplish this a little bit, but it not quite to what we really, really needed. It does consider a person's sexuality in the past, present, and their idealized future, which I think is kind of cool because sometimes, you know, maybe you're interviewing a married couple, but what if you know, back in, you know, the 40s and 50s, what if the man who's being interviewed is gay, but in a heterosexual marriage, their idealized future and what they're living now is going to be different. So the client scale at least brought into, uh, you know, the equation, what people wish they could be, how they wish they could live their lives. And the very, right. yeah, and the variable, and the variables in this are, Sexual attraction, sexual behavior, sexual fantasies, emotional preference, social preference, self-identification, and heterosexual slash homosexual lifestyle. Um, It was done in a cluster analysis in 2014, which addressed whether sexual orientation is a continuum or if it can be divided into labels using scores from the Klein from the Klein scale. So they were trying to basically figure out if their method was correct in the fact that they believed that sexuality is forever changing. It's a continuum. It isn't something that you are and you are forever. And I think that's interesting because that's something that I feel like people have been criticized for, especially if they come out as bisexual and then later come out as gay or if they come out as being gay and then come out as being transgender. I feel like society tends to question that a lot and has a misunderstanding of how understanding of oneself still grows through time. It doesn't really make sense that people are as critical as they are about that. Um, First of all, the older I get, the more I'm just like, let people live their lives however they want. It's none of our business, first of all. Uh, But secondly, 
biology, we ch- we are constantly changing. Our cells are changing. Every seven years, our cells change. You know, so it makes sense. Don't quote me on that. I'm not a scientist. <laughs> but it makes sense, if that's the case, if we are constantly evolving and changing, um, that that there's a possibility that our sexual orientation would change or the way that we think changes or the way, you know, all of that stuff changes all the time. Yeah, exactly. So it, it's not as though you declare what you are, you come out, you declare what you are, and then you have to stick to that for the rest of your life or you're a hypocrite. Like that's not how it works. That's so limiting. You know what I mean? That doesn't give anybody the chance to have any sort of personal growth. And I think that our, you know, sexual identity is so tied to our personal growth, you know, especially as society changes and we're allowing ourselves to ask these questions within ourselves. We're realizing more and more what we who we truly are and what we really want. Um, So you can find this grid online. Uh, Basically, you've got, you know, the variables and then you have a one through seven, you know, answer scale for the present, past and ideal. And it isn't really, you know, there's no adding involved or anything like that it's just something for you to look at to be able to see you know how you self-identify if you you know identify with the lifestyle who do you socialize more with who are you sexually attracted to more it's more so just a way I feel like for people to learn to better understand themselves and take the information take you know what they want from the information and leave what they don't I feel like that's the most important yes I agree I feel like it should be framed that way as well like don't take any of these quote-unquote tests uh, and decide that whatever that result is that must be who you are you know yourself first of all exactly Um, and And so I really do feel like if you're going to do something like take a look at the scale and find where you fall on it, do so more as just a reference point to learn to understand yourself better. Exactly. Don't do it to try and like, you know, label yourself. Don't. don't, Yes, exactly. Don't use it as gospel. Exactly. Well, and I it was especially clear to me when I did the storms scale. So that is called the erotic response and orientation scale. And he also wanted to address the problems in the Kinsey scale. Uh, The website says that this test offers a less linear understanding of non binary orientation, as well as an appreciation for asexual peoples. So uh, Psychology Wikia says that Storms believed that total heterosexuality and total homosexuality uh, indicated your total sexuality. So this is kind of, sorry, the way he says it is very rambling. But basically, there's this grid. It looks like four square. The upper left says homosexual. The upper right says bisexual. The lower right says heterosexual. The lower left says asexual. And then through the questions on this quiz, they put you somewhere on this scale. So in the questions, I had my I had multiple friends do this. I had Max take it. I took it a couple times with a few different ways of thinking about it. And it's interesting because the questions do ask, you know, like in the past two weeks, how often did you fantasize being with, you know, someone of the same sex? How often did you fantasize with being, you know, being with someone of the same of a different sex, you know, so on and so forth. And there were so many different questions, but still my results were not a way that I would label myself. 
So the first time I took the quiz, I did not take into account my relationship status. In my head, I pretended that I was single. If I wanted to go on the prowl tomorrow, what would I be going after? That kind of thing. I got that my sexual orientation was 85% heterosexual and 64.3% homosexual, which places you in the bisexual quadrant. So, or wait. Yes, and then I took it again with an account for my relationship status, and I pretty much got the same results. It said that I was 85.7 heterosexual and 60.7% homosexual, which still placed me in the bisexual quadrant. I do not identify myself as being bisexual. I identify myself as being a straight woman who finds herself being attracted to women at times, especially because of... Uh, I think people assume that especially because of like the fact that I've had past trauma with men. I talk about especially, you know, in my fantasy life, it's harder for me to uh, imagine men because of that history. So I don't so I can't take this as meaning that I should label myself as that when I don't feel that doesn't feel true to me. It's not who you are. That's why that feels like a a disservice to bisexual people. If I were to claim, oh well, this says I'm bi, I can't now go and go to the pride parade and say I am. Like that's bullshit. Which is another reason why, especially for young people who maybe don't have a grasp on who they are or what they want yet, it's why they should maybe take this with a grain of salt. Right. Well, and for me, it's been different because I've always been in heterosexual relationships. But for as long as I can remember, there have been certain women in my life that I've had crushes on or been attracted to. I had a crush on a girl in church when I was little. First time I remember ever having been turned on was the scene in the original Parent Trap where the girl's underwear is showing. You know, there's little things through my life where I can see where my attractions lie, yet my desire for what I want my long-term relationships to be, uh, the the people that I've been the most attracted to have not been women. My sexual experiences have not been with women. That's with men. In addition to that, like I said, when, you know, studying this scale, there is a difference between sexual attraction and romantic attraction as well. Like I have always been romantically attracted to Mm -hmm. men. That doesn't mean that I haven't been sexually excited by women. But, you know, like they're not mutually exclusive ideas. And that's I think that that is kind of at the heart of this entire thing, right? Where it's just like sexuality is complicated. And I'm so glad that it has been studied um, and that it managed to break down a lot of these stigmas and barriers that people had in regards to sexuality. But no amount of, I really believe that like no amount of study, no number of tests is going to tell the full story because each person is unique and different in the way that they um, look at sex and the way that they look at their own sexuality and I think that the most important thing that these conversations can do is to allow us to 
feel free to explore yeah. that and accept wherever we right. fall. It helps. <laughs> and, and just without it judgment. It helps take the stigma away with having these conversations, with taking these, you know, quizzes and tests and reading these things. And I am a research junkie. I love reading things, writing things down. And so for me, this is the kind of stuff that I'm fascinated by. And if that can help me, again, I'm also a self-improvement junkie. If this is something that can help me better myself, understand myself more, help others understand themselves, and also help the stigma go away from other people. I just feel like that's so that's so important. This there 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 are things that are good in this, although uh, for sure can be of harmless course. in like, the wrong it hands. It helps us it helps us to understand other people better. Like, I think, you know, there's a lot of criticism of Kinsey, the way that he managed to do these interviews, all of those things. There's there's some very valid criticism out there. And if you'd like to go read that, please feel free yeah. to do so. However, I do think that his releasing this information clearly without judgment um, was net positive in general, because it gave the average everyday American an idea, it broke down what they thought was quote unquote exactly. normal in their society. And that was important. Like that was groundbreaking. And it opened the door to allow other people to step in, clarify it further. It allowed other people to step forward and say, um, actually, my experience was different. And this is why. Oh, actually, I'm pansexual. And that's what this yeah. is. Um, it opened the door for people to be able to come forward yeah. and expand the definition of what exactly. sexuality and it gender is. It gave people is. a very easy way to, I feel, to describe sexuality being on a sliding scale. I remember the first time I watched Orange is the New Black. I think that was the first time I'd ever heard of the Kinsey scale uh, because the main, the main character is married to a man but has a lesbian relationship while she's in prison with someone who she was in a relationship with before. And she explains to like a friend of hers from the outside that, you know, it doesn't mean I'm gay or straight or bi. It's just, you know, it's, it's a sliding scale. It's whatever I feel. And I feel that that's also given people a great way to explain their different, yes. their different sexualities that they feel within themselves. So I hope that you all found this as interesting as we both did. Uh, we also hope that you all had a great Pride Month. You know, this Pride Month was much different than any that we had done before. We usually do, you know, a coming out episode. And like we've said a couple times during this month, we had, you know, four episodes planned out for what we wanted to do that was, you know, specifically geared toward just Pride Month. But of course, with the murder of George Floyd and the protests that followed and everything that's followed, we felt that it was important to still honor the LGBTQIA plus community, but also honor the black community as well. So I hope uh, for our listeners that you've enjoyed this month, that you've uh, learned something, that you it started conversations with your family. I hope that it's what you wanted, you know, that we still lived up to the expectation of June. And I think that's all. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Well, I'm so glad that we did this episode. I yeah. really am. Um, it was one that we had talked about doing for a while, and I did find it super fascinating. And I do hope it opened up a conversation um, for you if it was something that you've maybe been questioning. To just feel free to explore, explore your sexuality, explore your gender. You don't have to fall anywhere nope. on any scale or and any test. It's no one's business but your own. 
You know what I mean? That's right. It's no one's business. So thank you so much for joining us on another Pride Month. Thank you so much for joining us for another episode. Uh, if there's anything that you want to write into us right now, go ahead and email us at neighborhoodfeminist at gmail.com. You can also direct message us on Instagram at Angry Neighborhood Feminist and follow us there. We have a Twitter at Yamp Podcast. Y A N F Podcast. We have a Facebook business and group page. You can go ahead and rate and review us on the business page and chat with the other listeners on the group page. You can also rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. We love it when you do it and you will be featured on Reviews Day Tuesday. I think we have one right now that we still need to post. I'm not sure. But get in, get in there and we'll keep posting them. Uh, and lastly, if you don't already, please listen to us on Radio Public. It is a free way for you to listen. It helps us out just a little bit. All right. With all of that being said, we encourage you to, to rage on. on. Bye. Bye. Hey there, it's Rachel Ballinger, and I am extremely excited to invite you to Rachel Uncensored. It's my podcast where I sit down and get real with my friends and celebrity guests where we talk about all sorts of topics, and sometimes we might be under the influence when we do so. We cover things from personal stories to hot-button issues, and it's the only place on the internet you can find an uncensored version of me. It's a side of me that you might not have seen before because it's not the most family or brand friendly. But don't worry, I'm still sort of slightly a decent human being. If you're intrigued, then make sure you check it out. New episodes drop every Wednesday. You can find it on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Trust me, you won't want to miss out on the fun and candid conversations we have here on Rachel Uncensored.